Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Now, it's very possible I'm back in harness by now, but just in case, we decided to pre-record one last episode, and this is that. I say we, it's about me, Scott Phillips, and him, Andrew Strawman Page. How are you, mate? I'm good. Welcome back, if you're back. <laughs> exactly. Or if I'm not, then I'm, I should be back by now, because I, I, it should have been midweek-ish. Uh, I'm driving okay. back from from Uluru, the long way via through Queensland, uh, with a with a mate. We're, we're dropping the families at the airport. They're going to get back for school, and we're taking the long way home, which should be should have been a fun trip. So, assuming no Sounds horrible brilliant. breakdowns or something else, that's why we're pre-recording this one. Because if it all goes <laughs> pear shaped, I could be on the side of the road in Burke or Toowoomba or somewhere else right now. But hopefully, <laughs> I'm not. Hopefully, I am uh, back in the saddle. But yes, we uh, we wanted to do make sure that our loyal, faithful listeners got every bit of content we could provide. So hence, one last pre-record in saying that. If you have some questions, now is a great time because we've pretty much emptied the mailbag. This is this is the end of the end of the end of everything we've got. If you want a question answered, you need to throw it in the mailbag. And the way to do that is to go to info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au. Go to all the socials. Andrew is still exclusively on Elon's favorite toy, Twitter, uh, at mm-hmm. sage underscore simian, at strawmaninvest. He's probably on some Bitcoin-based, you know, distributed chat social network thing at some point, but that's going to die, let's be honest. Uh, you'll get me on Twitter or Insta at TMFScottP. The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. And on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. Now, Andrew, we got a question from Ed. Let's kick it okay. off with Ed's question. He says, G'day, first of all, thanks for the pods. Scott, stop it. You know what I'm talking about, but because I know you'll humor yourself about it, if in doubt, ask Andrew. Andrew, just say, Strawman is a private online investment club. Uh, hang on. Strawman. Or is it an online <laughs> private investment club? Oh no, what have I done? Which is it? No, no, disregard that. I'll go to strawman.com and check for myself. Nice one, Ed, Good I man. say, as I pat my own back. But seriously, Scott, please let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Ed. Thank you, mate. So, Ed, nice, I ask Ed. you the question. You saved Andrew having to answer it because you answered it for him, Ed. Which Fantastic. one is it, though? Is it an online private investment club or a private online investment club? Uh, Ed, yeah, sure. six in one, half a dozen of, an, of the other. Whatever you prefer. You say potato, I say potato. Yep, yep. All right. Ed says, so first, I started investing way back in 2002 based on the advice of a very good financial planner, one who has been an active advocate for fees for service and against commissions awesome this period of investment saw me navigate the gfc hold tight survive a margin call i'm not sure how good a financial planner was if you got you a margin call but that's a different question ed and ultimately sell well ahead in 2015 wait for it andrew to fund a mortgage for a residential property in early 2020 i realized a major increase in income invested heavily in the COVID downturn based on some foolish advice and quickly became a legend in my own mind up 100% throughout 2021. Then in capitals, he says, I am no longer a legend. Full stop. My greatest lesson. I've learned an awful lot from FOMO. He says in brackets, like a mofo. SPACs, diversification, outrageous overvaluations, though time may heal some of these. Lack of focus, lack of discipline, lack of a clear goal. For example, establishing what returns I'll be happy with. More importantly, I've learned to stay the course and to query all advice robustly, even foolish advice at times. 
He says, at a cost, both ways, just quietly. I think that means sometimes he listened and we lost him money. Sometimes he ignored us and he lost money himself. I'm not sure. As a side note, he says, I remain so very mixed. I both admire the commitment to the foolish philosophy, yet remain exceptionally frustrated by this very same commitment, which resulted in so many recommendations on non-profitable growth stocks in a range of technology-focused portfolios during a period of historically high valuation. I really feel the fool is currently standing with its pants down in many respects. Only time will tell if its pants are pulled up here in Australia and in the US. Gee, thanks, Ed, but uh, harsh but fair. Okay, so super, he says. I'm not messy with my super. My target is market returns for the next 20 years. I'm in my mid-40s, he says. It's in a handful of broad indexes and solid good, says me, shares. ASX 300, small lords, US total market, NASDAQ, and some proven performers. Think Brickworks, Solpats, Macquarie. He says, and certainly no other banks. I average in fortnightly, up to 90% of the maximum concessional rate. No stress. I build a modest cash pool, 10% of my remaining concessional cap, iteratively to top up when the opportunity presents. I sleep well at night, says Ed. I listen to you, gentlemen. I remain unemotional about the current tech market upturn. He says, email written early June 23. (laughs) Date snapping it, good choice. In fact, I see it as an ideal reminder to not listen to the noise. Here then is my question. If I'm happy with my approach to super and largely with my approach to all investing now, yet remain any one of many of excited, joyous, frustrated, dismayed, indifferent, or disgusted, depending on the investment in my portfolio outside of super, do you think an alignment of the approaches will alleviate these mixed emotions? Is it even necessary given I sleep at night? What about lower risk in super, higher risk outside it? I should point out that amongst my non-super rabble, I have many high quality investments, which I have topped up along the way, but they represent only a portion. He says 30% in terms of number, yet far more in terms of value. Yet, yet it depends. And in the long term, I'll be fine. I think he's channeling you there, Ram. I've phrased mm-hmm. my question, you see, to get at the psychology and deviate from personal advice, of course. As an aside, I'm going to do some background on the people who ran Silicon Valley Bank into the ground. Do you think I'll be dismayed and find they all retain various positions on various boards? Or will I rejoice that the system has caught up with them? Keep it up. Thanks, Ed. That is a very thorough email, Ed. Thank you very much for the thoughts. Thank you for the uh, harsh but fair uh, thoughts about our our recommendations over the last little while, too. They have been uh, a bit hit and miss in some of our services for a while. But, Ram, let's, let's go to Ed's particular questions let's start with the last one first silicon valley bank uh perp walk time in jail never to be served on a corporate board or a management position again or are they going to rise phoenix like from the ashes do you reckon uh well the bank's gone that's not coming back but but the people will be fine no one's going to jail i look at the gfc one one dude went to jail <laughs> you yeah. know, out of all of that nonsense you so a lot wrong, sad. don't you <laughs> yeah yeah i mean look it it's a nuanced thing they they actually um, weren't insolvent. Um, it mm. was it was sort of a <clears throat> it was a literal bank run, right? Yeah, it's yeah. sort of sapped, sapped out all of their uh, their deposits, right. and they just they, that sort of forced them to. It was a, it was a timing sell. problem rather than a rather than a solvency problem. Yeah, so they they didn't actually do. Look, you can question the rules, but yeah. they didn't break any. They didn't break any and rules, that's, and that's probably the biggest risk, right? Or the biggest issue, I reckon. Like as much as we. 
want to focus because we kind of we, we we love we love the gladiators and we love a bit of blood sport we kind of focus on the people and, and there's not to say they shouldn't be focused on because i i think it's pretty clear they mismanaged the bank for exactly that reason they yeah they set the circumstances up that meant a run was was you know we could run on the duration duration right. duration mismatch was yes. the error exactly. not a legal error but yes. a strategic error imagine error yeah totally but as you say, I think I think that's where we don't focus enough. I will say, let me let me tangent for a second, mate. Um, off heads question. You know the whole PwC scandal. Now it's four weeks later mm-hmm. after we're recording this, or five weeks. So anything could happen in the meantime. God knows what happens. What what frustrates me about PwC is that we're focusing on one consulting group and one thing they allegedly did wrong. And what will happen is if night follows day, PwC will cauterize the wound. They'll fire some people. They'll say, "See, we're fixed. We're changed. We're going to move on." And what it doesn't do is it doesn't change the inherent relationship or the incentives that exist mm-hmm. in that business. And I think that's the reason I raise that is A, because it frustrates the hell out of me, B, because I think that's the thing we're seeing. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank happened, what, 15 years after the GFC because the circumstances still remain in place to allow that to happen. But by definition, the regulators you talked about, the laws, the, the, the legislators, you know, if, if they'd done different things at the time of the GFC and then subsequently... The circumstances may not have existed for this to even happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, not, absolutely. They they wound back a lot of the protections. The, the, the reality is, is that banking is an insanely profitable endeavor. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you know, it really is. I take your money. I pay you bugger all for that, for the privilege. <laughs> That's right. And I invest it over there at much higher rates. Yeah. You know, the old saying is you borrow at three, lend at six, and you're on the golf course by three. That that was sort of like the old boys club. You know, it makes you yeah. sick to your stomach, doesn't yeah. it? But that's yeah. that's kind of it. So you yeah. get to literally, literally create money mm-hmm. and, um, you know, get a, get a return on that. So that's mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's great. Um, banking is actually a really important service. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, credit creation has actually been a, a, a wonderful tailwind for economic mm-hmm. growth. It's, it's all, But with, you know, just to sort of quote, um, Peter Parker's uh, uncle. <laughs> the first with great time, power, <laughs> with the great power comes great responsibility. And so I don't begrudge. I mean, we want banks to be profitable. We want them to be viable. We don't want them to be super profitable, but we want them to earn a margin and and, mm-hmm. and be there and, and to make it sort of worthwhile and, and you know, ultimately just sort of viable. Yeah. But I I kind of think that the deal should be with society with us, which is. Okay, we we kind of need you guys. A current current way that the world is sort of structured, but mm-hmm. um, you can't do this, 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 or this. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. everyone will cry foul, and oh, we can't. But well, you know, just don't do it then, right? But there'll there'll be plenty of there is as long as there is a margin to be made, mm. um, someone will do it, and and that's what it should be. And so I I definitely think that you know when we need we need we need better delineation between traditional banking services oh, and investment banking they, they, as well. They used, to, they used to be a literal, you couldn't do both. No. And the lobbyists managed to convince government it was necessary and possible and worthwhile without taking too much risk. And guess what? Yep. <laughs> Turns out, I, you know, uh, sophistication and, and whatever, there's, there's a whole rant there about the capture of government by, by vested interests, which we're not going to have time to go into. But suffice it to say, had they just done what the, you know, it's funny, there's not a lot new in investing, there's not a lot new in life. Um, Charlie Munger famously quotes Ben Franklin, who lived a couple hundred years ago and tries to live by those maxims. And you kind of think, you know what, for all things we think we've invented in the meantime, and we have, like, you know, society, the, the inventions of society are phenomenal. I'm not sure there are too many new principles or too many new ways of actually behaving ethically and responsibly that weren't known 400 years ago, right? Like, it's not actually yeah. that hard. You've just got to say, that sounds like 
yeah, maybe, you know. <laughs> the, the idea of removing red tape is, is attractive if the red tape is genuinely just painful for its own sake. It's there for a good yep. reason, then that's there for a good reason. Leave the red tape alone. Yep. Yeah, put, put, put proper incentives in place. A yeah. while back, there was um, changes to the law where boards were directly responsible for um, the health and safety of, of employees. Yeah, yeah. And so guess what? Every company yeah, presentation, right. particularly for mining and industrial yeah, companies, yes, exactly. you know, it's oh, zero accidents and they make a big deal about it. The mm-hmm. annual reports, it is there. And yep. guess what? They genuinely try to minimize that. Yep. Be- because, why? Because they're on the hook for it if, if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And so when there is, when there is a very little risk mm-hmm. and downside, to me personally, as, as someone in a position of authority as a key decision maker, yeah. well, and there's a huge upside to be made if, if I want to sort of push things in, a, in, in, a, in a, uh, the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. I might not do it. You might not do it. 80% of people Someone's might not do, do it. it. But enough yeah. people yeah. will do it if the conditions are there, right? It's sort of like chances are things won't go completely to pear-shaped mm-hmm. on my watch. Mm-hmm. I stand to score an incredible bonus. Worst, worst case scenario, I lose my job and I pop up on another board in a few years' time <laughs> and I've still got my millions of dollars. It's kind of like we, we always talk about risk-reward in this game. And so that it is a – yeah. It is a very um, bastardized sort of risk reward yeah. kind of setup that we have. So you know, if you if you were to make the board directly responsible for improper you know uh, judicial management of of other people's capital, yep. I reckon you'd see some changes. Funny, you know, I um, not going to happen. No, not it's not. Happen. If you track this back, here's the thing: the management are appointed by the board. The board are appointed and and retained by the shareholders. The shareholders in most large organizations tend to be a bunch of short-term funds who really don't care about the long-term future of the business, generally, with, with massive exceptions and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's, it, either you change the regulations or you change the shareholding, uh, or both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's also why I love founder-owned businesses, businesses that were founder-run businesses, businesses where the, the CEO or the board or both have large amounts of their wealth tied up in these companies. Um, yep. You know, because it's just, you know, we talk about independent directors and independent directors are supposed to be people who haven't been engaged with the company that long. Uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. we've ranted before the SEC in the US, by their rules, Warren Buffett's not an independent director, nor that's Charlie Munger. It's like, mm-hmm. so hang on, you're telling me we should get rid of Buffett and Munger and hire some professional inv- director on four other boards who has a nice CV, a shiny suit and some good connections. And mm-hmm. that's a better, you know, it's... it's Madness. It's, it's one, it is in it, and you kind of think about the, that's what's missing is the incentives piece. There's there's an academic mm-hmm. reality of what if they didn't have any skin in the game on this thing, then they'd make you know independent judgments. Like, well, actually, no, <laughs> they, they're going to make not independent is, is the wrong word, right? It's like are they genuinely aligned with with shareholders? Well, if they own a decent amount of shares, and you know this is their thing, you know you can be sure that's why Buffett's putting his son as as the new chairman when Buffett's no longer running the business. He says, look, you know, this it's it's his job to to care about. The future of the company, my, my legacy, my artwork gets passed mm. down to my son. He's going to look after this as, as the chair because he cares more than anyone else does for those, for those reasons, right? And it's that kind of stuff that, that matters. Hey, um, let's move on to the second yep. part of the question because otherwise we'll still be talking about this at, at, um, in an hour's time. Uh, I think Ed's question is interesting, mate, about you know what to do inside super versus what to do outside super. And it strikes mm. me Ed's kind of taking this kind of reasonably... Um, you know, he says super's great. <laughs> it's it's the outside super stuff where he's taken a different view. He's been a little more growthy. He's been a little more ambitious, and it maybe hasn't worked out as well as he wanted it to compared to his super. So he's kind of saying, well, what you know, what's the what 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 should he do? Should should he be saying 
an approach is an approach and the structure doesn't matter? Or should he be saying super is for conservative retirement? The other stuff I can take some chances on. Um, and he says, as you will say, it depends. And in the long term, he'll be fine. Uh, but mm. other, other than that, uh, what do you what do you recommend? Or what, what's what's your thought about super versus non-super investing and whether or not they should be the same or different or how to think about those two buckets? I personally think it should be the same. I mean, regardless of the sort of tax structure, I just want to make the best investments I, I possibly can, Yeah. right? So the the distinction for me is what do I feel I want access to before I'm you know, 75 by the time they raise it when I get there, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> which is going to happen, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Uh, that that that's the main consideration for me. So I've got a I've got a pile of money that I've a pile of money. Wouldn't that be nice? I've got a bit of money that I've I've, <laughs> I've got a swimming pool I've, full of money. Says Andrew Moneybags Page. I was just whinging to you about my latest electricity bill and the rest of it. So you, that's right. There's not you know whatever's there. It's yeah. it's a question of you know. Uh, is this for the ultra long term or is just this for, well, it's, it's always long term for me, but you know, I, I do, I do like having money outside of super because I, my circumstances might change. I might actually want to buy or be in a position to buy a house at some point in time. So that's, for me, that's the, that's the delineating factor is, is when do I need access to it? Other than that, I just, I pretty much approach it the same way. Is your investing strategy any different, mate? But in the two different, I do have markets? I do have a lot more. Uh, I don't have any ETFs directly outside of super, but okay. I do have it in super. I, I do tend to keep it pretty um, uh, easier, I yeah. suppose. So it doesn't require as much fiddling. <laughs> I, I use Australian yeah. Super, the member direct option, yeah. which allows me to sort of buy direct amongst the top three hundred. Um, so it, you know, I've got I've got a bit more flexibility like that, and I do I just do tend to I try not to fiddle too much as a general rule, but it's it's that stuff I really want sort of as 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 low fiddle requirement, um, <laughs> but it's not miles away. There's there's a lot of overlap in in in, in many other respects. Yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm actually probably even more than you from the sound of it. Um, I think my super and non super is almost it's not it's not identical at all. Um, I have US shares in my own name that I don't have in my super fund because just honestly it's just a hassle because I have an SMSF and just a US mm. account I can't be bothered with um, and I probably should but you know so so I have a, a US shares only in my own name that being said I want to say 90 plus percent of my positions are overlapping in the two different structures mm. they are different weightings because I bought them at different times interestingly enough so mm -hmm. uh you know I, I i could sell down some of my bigger holdings i've had for a long time and they've done actually relatively well um i, I could sell those down and reallocate but i it, but i didn't when i put money in super for example in smsf i haven't taken a bigger chunk if i bought them later just because you know some one of them is that's where the market's got to now that that's that's a degree of self-denial and and um you know crazy that magical thinking because if i'm happy to have 10 percent of company a in my my personal fund but five percent in super there's no real reason that should be true with with one exception which is i do kind of consider them both the same pool of money um obviously keep outsiders you do andrew to make sure i've got flexibility but i look mm -hmm. at my total portfolio and say okay well there's 10 percent in company a in, in my personal account five percent in the other account total total okay well just, i'll just pretend the numbers are the same seven and a half percent in total that's my total exposure to that as a proportion of my total portfolio and so there is, there's a bit of that. That's kind of how I think about it. So if something's worth buying for super, it's worth buying for my personal account and vice versa in my mind. I don't always mm. buy them all at the same time. I don't always buy the same amount of each, but I, I don't have any distinction between the two. I would just, we, we talked before, mate, I think it was on, actually on Friday, might have been the week before, about if you're someone who just needs to have a bit of play money just to, to keep the rest of the money safe, then then so be it. And yeah. so if that's you, Ed, or there's someone listening, you know, feel free to do something like that. To my mind, 
I don't, I don't necessarily think your investment approach should be different for the two buckets, unless your horizons are different, which Andrew just kind of mentioned for him, mm-hmm. and potentially a house. Um, you know, I've got hopefully, I mean, you know, fingers crossed, a couple of decades left to do on this thing, um, and then some sort of retirement, part-time, full-time, whatever I end up doing. And, you know, I, I think my best investments are my best investments. I don't... Here's the other thing, by the way. If, you, if, you're, in, if you're in a... If you're reasonably young, and, and you are, I'd like to believe you are, uh, Ed, because you're in your 40s and you're younger than me. So I'm going to assume you're young. Uh, but if that's if that's you, if that's the case, then you don't need to be taking undue risks. So even you've said yourself, you learned a few things about yourself, about what sort of returns you really want. Um, I think you should absolutely go for the most, the highest return you can get, reasonably get, right? Because that's what we're here for. Otherwise, buy an index. But I also would say, don't don't be like Aesop, Aesop's tortoise and hare. Um, you've, I think you've probably learned that lesson. So maybe you, I'm telling you this after the fact. But for anyone else listening, don't feel like oh, I'm going to go for 25% returns on my personal account because I can afford to because it's high growth and it's higher risk and I'll just keep my super safe. That money is going to spend exactly the same when you're 67 or 75, as Andrew says, when we finally retire. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't, you don't feel, in my view anyway, don't fall for the temptation of feeling like you have to or you should take more risk in one or less risk in the other. They are both you know, retirement funding in theory or maybe for some other purpose like a house or something else. But generally speaking, um, for me, it's it's the same approach, the same mentality, the same risk reward trade off. I don't say I don't I don't think it's useful theoretically as an investor. Again, if you need to have some play money, even so be it. But generally speaking, if you ask me best best practice, I would say all the money is going to be used at some point later in your life. Um, you want it in the best investments you can find. Taking undue risk for high but unlikely reward is probably not a, not the smartest strategy in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I would, I guess, one comment I would make is if you are going for that higher growth mm. strategy outside of super, it really doesn't matter where it is. Yeah, I that's think right. what what they they tend to be called high beta stocks, and that just means that they're more volatile than the average of of mm. the market. Mm. Um, so what you tend to see there, even if you're doing it well, is that when markets are going up, you go up much more. Mm. But when markets are going down, you go down much more. Um, it's it's kind of just the way it goes. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, of course, we know that you know on average the market goes up two out of every three years and one down one of every three as an average, right? So it it does tend to work out pretty well over time. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's just yeah. worth emphasizing that that it That's is point, is if you are going to take that strategy. Um, you're not necessarily wrong. Maybe I'm just saying this to make myself feel better. <laughs> but you're not necessarily wrong yeah. if you've underperformed for a year or so, yeah, because correct. that's probably what you should have expected with that that kind of strategy. That's a good. You're point. definitely wrong if the businesses aren't performing well, <laughs> and you know. Or if you realise you paid too much in the first place, because that, that, yeah, that both those things are true. But yeah, very true, very true. But but as I'm saying, even when done right, you will just see things mm. move around to a much greater degree. And so it's it's just just to sort of know that in advance, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, I, I very deliberately approach, <laughs> take take that on because I kind of think, well, if the price of excess returns is excess volatility, I'll pay mm. that price. Mm. Um, but yes, but I exactly. but hopefully I'm going in eyes wide open with with that <laughs> expectation. And you expect the long term to still work out exactly exactly. Yeah, as so far. Mate, here's one from Bryce who says, "Hi, Andrew and Scott. I'm a lowly retail investor." who is constantly envious of the opportunities that sophisticated slash wholesale investors have access to. 
The grass looks greener on the other side, says Bryce, and I find myself mournfully reading investment application forms of proven fund managers who would have the requirement of a sophisticated investor certificate. Why wouldn't I want my money in the hands of experts, he asks. It seems strange that it appears to be a level of protection for investors who can't afford to take on more risk when any Joe Blow can YOLO all their money into some specky stock on a trading app without anyone batting an eyelid. Is there yeah. any way to get exposure to some of these funds? This is maybe a fund manager ETF, question mark. Or am I doomed to watch from the sidelines until I either earn enough or have enough to become sophisticated? Cheers, Bryce. Ram. I hate I hate sophisticated the label as much as I hate retail, you know. <laughs> yes. Sophisticated just means retail is just the industry's way of calling you poor and sophisticated <laughs> is the industry's way of calling you rich. Yeah. That's what it is, yeah. right? Like that's how you'd explain it to a 12-year-old and that'd be the most accurate way to explain it. So there's nothing necessarily sophisticated about you if you're a trust fund baby, right? Correct, you just correct. got a pile of cash, therefore you're allowed to sort of play in that field. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's more to do with regulation than yes, anything correct. else. And I know a few fundies and they just, they only do wholesale, not because they don't want access to retail, but because they have to jump through a gazillion other hoops and there's a lot of costs and compliance issues that go around that. Mm. So it's generally, it's just like, well, I do re- I, I do a wholesale only mm. because I just can't be bothered jumping through these yeah. insane regulatory hoops. Yep. And they are insane. It's, um, you know, again, just not to, not to go too much onto a tangent, we, <laughs> we do need regulation, but I think there's been a bit of overreach in, in, in certain areas. Um, the other final point I would make is don't assume that these guys do better than 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 you do, mm-hmm. uh, or, or or can do, right? There's so <clears throat> there are some wonderful uh, wholesale funds out there for sophisticated investors that have done well, but that's true outside as well. There's also a majority that have underperformed mm. and not done well, which are only accessible for sophisticated investors. So I don't have the data in front of me. I'm 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 sure someone has done the research and mm. looked back in time, and mm. my my guess would be the eighty twenty rule. In, in the sense that there's probably 20% that have, have got some meaningful long-term track record of outperformance and the rest the rest that don't. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm not a sophisticated investor. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't have, I don't have that, that on my um, driver's license, but mm. I don't really lose any sleep over it as well. There's, there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there um, without, without access to that. Yeah, I... I mostly agree and partly disagree significantly, actually, mate, uh, with this uh, with you on this one. And I think we've kind of talked about this a little bit before. Um, I I agree about the arbitrary allocation between the two. It was up to me. I'd actually get rid of the sophisticated uh, investor criteria altogether and make everyone meet the retail investor criteria and be done with it. Um, so I, I I don't think the uh, to your point. I don't think the I don't think the difference serves anyone particularly well. Right. The the I mean you talk about being the retail stuff being overregulated, that's probably true to some degree. But I would also say that sophisticated air quote sophisticated investors are also easy marks to your point, because A, they're not necessarily actually sophisticated, they're just rich. And B, why again to your point about the, the good fund managers you know say, I'm just gonna take advantage of the lower regulation thanks and skip through this way. The other guys say, You mean I can raise money without like a prospectus or having made ASIC <laughs> rules or that's it. If I've got something that's a little less, you know, obviously um, uh, ideal, <laughs> justified, reasonable, uh, maybe even, you know, a little bit smelly, I could go to the sophisticated investors, air quote sophisticated investors, in other words, find some rich trust fund kids, as you said, and say to them, hey, look at this great idea. I'm doing this really cool AI thing that's going to be great. And I haven't got a prospectus, but if you've got more than a quarter million dollars, I can, I can take your money. 
Oh, okay, mm. that sounds exciting. I'll do that, you know? And I think, to my mind, mate, I think we should absolutely work out which retail investor, I'll use that term deliberately in this case because it is the, the industry term rather than your, mm. your preference mm. for it. I, sometimes I don't mm. to mock you this time I'm doing it deliberately. Um, <laughs> you know, some of those rules may need to be to roll back or changed or repealed or improved or whatever. But I think the too often the sophisticated investor tag is just used as an excuse not to do the things that actually should be a reasonable esti- or estimator or expectation, I should say, of what rules we would like to see in place to both make sure the market works well and protect investors from, you know, our prospectus is a prospectus for a reason. You must have these things in it. Why? Because the regulators decided these things are important for investors to know. Uh, to say to someone, just because you have a certain amount of money, you no longer need these or deserve these protections, I think is, is part of the problem. I agree with you, mate, in terms of access. Mm. Um, you could have invested in, uh, let me pick three, Berkshire Hathaway I own, Solpats I own, West Farmers I don't own. 20 years ago and done spectacularly well without needing to pay fund manager stupid fees to get in on the occasional thing you see reported. And your point about 80-20 made is I think absolutely right. You see the one fund that does well, it's like, oh, I wish I had that one. You know, it's like the share that went well. You know, could I have bought that one? Yeah, did I? Maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, you're always going to you're always going to notice the ones that go really well and say, gee, I wish I had that. And you won't necessarily mm-hmm. see the ones that go badly and go, oh, thank God I wasn't a sophisticated investor and lost money on that thing. So I, I guess I, you know, I... I really, Bryce, would encourage you personally, uh, anyone listening, not to actually desperately desire too badly to be a sophisticated investor. I am not. I have no desire to be. If and when I get to that level of wealth and income, I won't be applying for a sophisticated investor exemption. I just don't want to. I don't. I don't. The, the value of that to me is, you know, not exactly zero, but I don't think it's any necessarily better or worse than. than being a standard retail investor, I like the fact companies have to disclose stuff. The one thing I would say very quickly is you say, Bryce, you know, uh, any Joe Blow can YOLO their money into some specky stock. That's absolutely true, except the specky stock, by virtue of being listed on the exchange, has to have at least met those criteria uh, that ASIC requires for a retail investor to invest in. So the stock can still go badly, don't get me wrong. Um, but they had to at least do the full prospectus and everything else. You could have a specky stock or a specky company in a wholesale market where the same same dodgy company is the same, except there's even less disclosure. So it's not so much the investors' access to the investment idea itself. It's how much information the investment idea needs to provide to the investor before you're able to invest in it. And I, again, I just, I, I just be careful what you wish for. That's probably how I'd, I'd leave that one. Any, any thoughts I mean, on I, that, mate? I, I would... I, I would I, I can wish that I would at least have the potential to yeah, be a right. sophisticated investor. <laughs> there are worse problems in the world, aren't there, than saying right. whether you want to do it or not. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, um, here's one from Ivan uh, who says, Hi guys, I'm so glad you have this podcast and can translate jargon into English to answer questions that are being asked. Also, ones that are slightly off topic, including the old faithful about straw man. And he gives us one of those rolling on the floor laughing emojis. So I think that's a good thing. I'm going to, I'm going to put that in Ivan as a, as a, as a laughing vote Laughing or for. crying? No, no, I, think, no I, I put it down as a vote for my, my okay. occasional question when I'm not sure about the company you work for, Andrew, or the company you founded, <laughs> strawman.com. Uh, he says, being a simple blue collar worker, I'm confused. I don't have a home loan, but I do buy a lot of unleaded petrol. It's been stated many times that roughly a third of people have home loans and increasing interest rates directly affects them. I have no idea how many people can drive car, how many people drive cars, but I'm guessing it's more than a third of people. Interest rates affects, interest rate effects take time to flow into the community. Fuel can be increased in five minutes. If the objective is to remove money from the economy, 
Does it make sense to use fuel and take a smaller amount from a larger number of people? I get that this is a job for politicians and they wouldn't want to do it because of the backlash, but let's face it, no one likes politicians anyway, says Ivan. This seems very simple. So what am I missing? Let the rant begin. <laughs> Ivan. Thank you, Ivan. That's a very good one. I'm going to share, by the way, um, uh, the, Ivan's auto signature on his email. Uh, he, says, he says, where you are in life may not be your fault. What you do next is. That's a bit of, uh, bit of Sunday morning inspiration for us. Um, it's good enough. Hey, uh, what do you reckon, mate? Fuel instead of rates? Yeah, I have to really ponder that one. I mean, mm. the, the really tricky thing with all of these is, is always the unintended consequences. Yes, exactly. And, and so at first, on first hearing that, I kind of think, yeah, yeah. But I'd, I'd really need to ponder that a little bit, little bit more. Mm. Um, I mean, fuel is obviously, it's not just drivers, right? It's just yeah. impacts the cost of delivering goods and moving them yeah. around, just everything. So it's, there's probably a, a lot to be sort of uh, uh, said for that. Mm. So I kind of, my initial reaction is, yeah, I think there's some, there's some uh, sense to that. It wouldn't impact the, the, um, the cost of credit though, which is a very important determinant for growth. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if you yep. would replace it I mean, is the argument more generally we should have a more nuanced response that isn't just entirely about interest rates? Mm. Yes. <laughs> Strong yes. That is definitely what we, we need. How that the mechanics of that are designed and played out is mm. a much, much, much more difficult question. But yeah, at first glance, I, 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 I think there's some sense to what, what's been proposed. Yeah, I, um, I think I, I'm going to assume Ivan also assumed to be done as well as the other thing, not only the cost of credit, mate, but it does also impact um, foreign exchange rates. The, the relative yes. currency. So if we did it, yep. but the Yanks didn't, for example, uh, it would meaningfully impact. And, and imported inflation is a big deal. So if the Australian dollar was to not rise as much because the interest differential was bigger, it meant imports cost even more. So you'd have issues with that. I don't think I'd... I, I like the idea, Ivan. I don't think I'd use fuel RAM for the reason you mentioned, which is it because it's an input cost. And mm-hmm. I think for as much as possible, you want to levy the the uh, restrain, uh, restrainment, restrain... English, uh, whatever the right word is, the restraint of uh, of activity at the consumer level and ideally at the last purchase level. You want you know the RBA is, is doing what it's doing to try to restrain spending to slow economic activity. I think if you put fuel into my car and then I deliver some veggies to your warehouse and you pick them up and take them to the supermarket, the supermarket gives them to you. You know, yes, the eventual price would include the impact of all those fuel bills, but it kind of becomes hidden as a as an ability to separate that out from overall otherwise inflation, right? If you were to increase, for example, GST, you'd say, you'd, like we did in 2000 when it came in, the RBA said, well, inflation's now 10%. It wasn't that, whatever it was, but we can ignore that because we know it's just the final price GST. It's, it's almost a one-line adjustment. If it was an input cost for a whole lot of other things, it makes it much, much harder to account for the impact of. The, the impact might be the same in dollar terms, but trying to separate out real inflation from you know kind of fuel excise linked inflation in fact the, the change to the fuel excise actually came through the inflation numbers just recently and we saw a really big drop because it kind of went on as i increased because it went on off and came on um mm. so you know you do get that and you got to kind of try and translate it out when it goes in the price of fruit and veg or the price of the you know the tradie coming to your place to fix your fix your powerpoint because he's had to pay more to get there it's just it's just harder to separate out um, the other thing i would say i haven't thought it's worth is 
Uh, and this is, by the way, also true of interest rates. So I'm not suggesting it's, not, it's any worse than interest rates um, because of exactly your point. But it, there, are, there is also a really... When you want to broaden something out, it makes a whole lot of sense, except you've got to think about who you're impacting, right? So uh, the pensioner who doesn't have a home loan but also has to pay more for fuel to get to you know, wherever they're going, uh, the supermarket, the buying club, or whatever, uh, you know, you're increasing their cost as well. Is that fairer because it impacts everybody, I guess? Do they have the ability to absorb it the way other people might? No. And so that's my also my issue with increasing the GST, for example, is if you put everything else up 5%, the person is already on zero who has to now cut out, cut back another 5% of what they would otherwise buy, uh, whether that's, you know, electricity or, or food or fuel or something else. I don't know that you want to apply it arbitrarily across the board. Again, it's no Does, less arbitrary that, than, than interest rates, but it's just, you know, the, the ability of some of those lower income earners and fixed income earners to absorb that stuff is just, it, you just need to think about the implications for those groups. But isn't it true as it stands though, right? Like yes. those people are still being impacted by interest rate rise, even if they don't have a, it, it, that's the kind of the point, right? It, it goes through all the various import costs. Yes, uh, totally. Producers yeah, yeah. put their prices up, yep. you know, retailers put their all in, and then the pensioner, you know, pays more to, get, you know, to go out Correct. and have a game Correct. of bingo Correct. at the end of the day. So it's kind of, yeah, yeah I mean. But cur- curing inflation by putting up their prices even more is probably, you know, interest rates, you, again, I'm not saying rates are the, is a better solution. I, I would use other things like, for example, superannuation contributions, uh, where it impacts workers who can probably absorb it more easily than someone who's on fixed income or a low income, for example. I just, I just think we need to be mm. careful about those broader stroke solutions. They feel fair because they're broad and they impact everybody, but our ability to absorb them is different based on our income levels and, and other cir- life circumstances. So I think there's just, that's, that's the, whether, whether it's petrol or whether it's a GST or something else, there's just that issue of, you know, the pension is already on a fixed income. They've got to pay 7% more for everything. And then you say, oh, by the way, GST is up another 5%. Well, now it's 12% more for everything. Um, you know, there's, th- those groups don't necessarily have as much ability to absorb it as I do, for example, or you do, Andrew, or, or some of our other listeners on, on better income. So I, I don't know, mate. I, I think there's a, there's a fairness can be seen as everyone pays the same or it impacts people on, on the basis of their ability to pay. Uh, I think they're both, they're both different definitions of fairness. I tend to lean towards the latter rather than the former. Uh, just because I think that's probably the more appropriate way to think about who can most fairly bear the burden when we have circumstances like this. And by the way, um, the, the people most able to absorb it are also probably the people who are spending more money in general anyway. So impacting their mm. demand is probably more important than impacting the demand of a, a pensioner or someone on the dole or a, on, a, on a minimum wage who's just trying to buy a, a loaf of bread and, a, and you know, fill a car up with some unleaded. The biggest problem really is a political one because... <laughs> You have to be a politician who stands up and says, like at the moment yeah. I can point to Phil Lowe and go, what a meanie. Um, hey, I don't think you should do that. You know, that, that it's really, <laughs> I hate the that. politician who says, actually, we're going to increase uh, taxes on this and this, and we're going to put, put yep. the excise up on this. Yeah. Just doesn't get voted in. Yeah. Reality, you know, and, and the opposition of whoever the opposition happens to be will absolutely spend it is, you know, party yeah. X is taxing you more and we're not going <laughs> to. Right. Yeah. So it just yeah. doesn't happen, you know. It's un- unfortunate, but mm. but I it, a snowball's chance in hell. Yeah, and by the way, we think that politicians made central banks independent so they could make independent decisions. That's part of it. It was also it's like they do with their remuneration in New South Wales. We have a thing called IPART, the Independent Pricing and Regulatory Tribunal, who decide politicians' wages. Why? Not because it's fair. So politicians could say, "I didn't do it. I didn't want more wages." They said we should get more. It um, it doesn't doesn't work that way. Um, really, a quick shout out, mate, for an article by Sean Kelly, who's an SMH columnist, probably the whole nine newspapers, Fairfax newspapers thing. I think um, he, the article was titled "Philip Lowe is Cactus," but truth be told, his fate is a sideshow. 
Uh, Kelly just does a really, really good job of talking about the way that we demonize Phil Lowe um, and, and Polly just choose to ignore the fact of um, you know, what's, what's, actually, what's actually going on and, and how it needs to be resolved. And talks about which we have broader, more nuanced tools to solve some things. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Will, uh, will, as, as I'll just read this actually. His, and the problems, of course, will still be there after Lowe goes. His removal, assuming it comes, will be huge news. But the change will largely be aesthetic, with political implications both good and bad for the government. On one hand, it won't have low to kick around anymore. On the other, as I've previously noted, it will make, seem, it will make it seem as though the government's economic reign and its opportunity for economic reform is just beginning. The rest of us, though, will be suckers if we buy into the idea that Lowe or his replacement matter as much as what the government actually does next. So yeah. that was a, a really nice. Song. It's a great. It's a great. Point. I mean, she's. Got, I said to you previously. I can't. I have to turn off the news at times when the, it's being covered. It's just. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> yes. You know, um, there was something. Um, this probably a current affair. So I don't know why I should be surprised. But you know, they <laughs> taking nice. him to task is what that when he was speaking recently, yep. he came on stage to a, a Justin Timberlake song. Right. You know, can't stop the feeling. Or it was a hype, a, up, yeah, upbeat. Hype yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, how could you go on stage? You know, and every family is suffering. And rah, rah. it's like, mm-hmm. if you actually see the clip, you like, it literally was three seconds. It was just the event organizers put. <laughs> they did for everyone who walked on stage. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, exactly. he didn't select exactly. the song, yeah. and he just he, he just somberly walked up the stairs. It just, and I'm mean, just sort yeah. of like, oh, for goodness sakes, right? Like yeah. we we are children, and and we we get treated like children, really <laughs> probably are. deservedly in in so many ways. When when that's yeah. the sort of the disc course around it yeah, and this yeah. has always been one of the issues i've sort of had with it it's mm. just like when you when you put a person or a small group of people at the center of things mm. and you think that's fine as long as they're good competent people it's like <laughs> well it seems like a f- pretty big flaw where it's mm. just like it's, it's okay as long as they're okay and and human well nature and history will tell you that you're often not going to get people who are that that competent yeah, as okay. well so it's just sort of like the next person could be better they could mm-hmm. be worse i don't know i don't know it, and and they're they're all they're going to be making mm. all kinds of mistakes and they're also going to be inherently unpopular mm. you know um at, at various times just because no one likes to pay more but sometimes it is what what needs to be done Great. so that works. Yeah. you know yeah I, you know me I, I go way out on the fringe and say just get rid of the central bank altogether but let's let's oh, not rehash that conversation not that you know, it takes so much, so much, so much extremity in one one podcast. Uh, let's finish with a question from Stasi, who says, "Greetings to the CEOs of Page and Phillips Incorporated." Thank you. Hey, hey. Um, I'm just sure it's not Phillips. You don't see Page, too but, many uh, joint CEOs. You don't normally brothers, but or I did or something else. Go on. I did did interview uh, a team of joint CEOs oh. recently with Strawman okay. uh, Cobram Estates. So oh, yeah. the, the chefs out there will will know them. They yeah. they make a very fine bottle of of olive oil. Oh, I do, yeah. Uh, and they've got they've got uh, joint CEOs, and I it's the first time I think I've come across it on the ASX. I'll show them. There may be other examples. I am strongly. But maybe maybe we can be another say. example. I'm strongly against yeah. the well. Other other new. I'm strongly against the idea. I think the bus will stop somewhere. I, 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 I see. Unless, yeah, unless yeah. you're incredibly aligned, who makes the call? Who do you go to? You play CEOs off against each other. Your relationship with one guy, not the other girl, or vice versa. I I I would I would I would not like to see it. I would not like to see it. I don't, I don't, yeah, to see my committee see is very rarely a good thing. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, there's a pretty pretty strong delineation in. I'm using yeah. that word a lot. Today. I, can, I can't speak um, that common, by the way. I, I'm not criticizing them specifically. I just I just wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not fair enough. Anyway, it's a side point. Please, please continue. So he says, I have two questions for the podcast. Firstly, 
I know you two have some strong opinions on investment properties. No. I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on short-term rentals, like Airbnb as an investment. From my research, it looks to be riskier, but could also generate more of a return. What do you reckon, mate? Uh, this is one I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Yeah. Um, because it's... Yeah. I mean, look, on one hand, I, I go with the idea of you've got an asset. Mm. You should be able to do what you like with it. Yep. And if you want to go... And doing a, doing short stay or or airbnbs or owning a pub or a cafe there's a lot of romanticism to it. it's a lot of hard work ask ask anyone who does it i really like a pub, but i'm sure it's a terrible thing oh you get a you get a bunch of lads on a bucks yeah. weekend who yeah. hire your airbnb and then you know figure out that the real costs are after all of that <laughs> security deposit or no right yeah. so yeah. but but i mean i think when done well yeah. um there are a lot of examples of it just being much 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 more effective you're yeah. not there's not someone in there all the time but the the rates that they're paying for when they are can yeah, can true. be really a, a really attractive true so i kind of tend to think then yeah if you want to do that then then you should be able to do that where it gets much more complicated of course is that this has a real impact on the broader housing crisis scenario <laughs> and there are an insanely high amount of properties in short term sort of they're just locked out of the rental market which is sort of exacerbating the problem so i don't be i believe yeah. it's something that if you waved a magic wand and said you can't do airbnb anymore or stays or any of those kind of ones mm. it probably does have a bit of a, an impact in the short term but it doesn't structurally solve the problem anyway mm. so i feel as i got this is this is generally the discussion around the housing crisis they're all like little fiddling around the edges kind of stuff so don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I think it would have an, an impact. I don't know if it would be as, as significant and sustained an impact as, as a lot of people think. Yeah. But I'm really trying to make my, my mind up around it. I saw an article, was it Michael West just recently was just basically saying what you could do is, is there's a bit of a tax loophole there for that in the sense that you can claim, I believe, 100% of your running costs on properties that might only be least the least isn't the right word but rented mm -hmm. out through these so these apps for like a third of the year or something right okay so there there are certain legis certain um legislations around that that you mm -hmm. could probably mm -hmm. bring more into line i mean why do i get to claim 100 percent of my cost as a deduction when it's only a, a, you know for two-thirds of the time i had it for my own personal use you know what i mean so there's there's yeah. there's some like a lot of things there's you might be accused of sort of fiddling around the edges there, but there is some low-hanging fruit I think that could that could move it in the right direction. But just to the outside of the housing crisis um, um, conversation, the the, conversa the the question here is, you know, it doesn't make sense to do. And I think, yeah, it does in the sense that it makes sense to start a business too. But starting a business mm -hmm. is full of risk. Yeah. Statistically, most fail, yeah. and it can go wrong. So don't. Don't don't treat it as a slam dunk. Mm. I just do this and then I make more more money. There there is added. This is the golden rule of investing. Really, is like mm -hmm. more return requires you to take more. Risk. Yeah, that's right. And it's a lot of work. Well, you if know, you're taking more risk, you better hope there's a better return. Exactly. You want to exactly. That's better. That's better put. Yep. And so uh, you know you've 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 got more costs for the the cleaning and the upkeep, the maintenance. A lot of people hire. Uh, property management firms or real estate agents to sort of look after it sort of for them. Um, there is the risk where if I sign a 12-month lease, <laughs> believe you me, that's about as long <laughs> as you can get another rent for another day. 
But at least you, you know that you've got that certainty of income. Now, it might be on paper, if I can only rent it out mm. for X percent of the year, that, that it works out better. But if for whatever reason, you know, tourism activity drops up, dr- dries up and the yeah. rest of it, it you could f- – these are, the, these are businesses like uh, airlines, uh, like hotels, like childcare centers, like nursing homes, that it's all – the ec- economics really come down to occupancy. And so you, what you find is that mm. you hit this – there's this point of inflection which, above which you start making really good gross margins, below which you start just hemorrhaging money. Yeah. And it, it, might, it might just be that it's just sort of like, well, it turns out this Easter I didn't get a booking. And that just throws the whole maths out. Yes, exactly. You, know, you ask a lot of retailers, they make all their money in December, right? When everyone's Christmas mm-hmm. shopping. So you just take out, you just put one bad period in there and everything kind of changes. Now, I'm not here to sort of say, oh, it's therefore really a bad idea. I'm not. I'm just saying these are the risks that, that you face. Extra work, extra cost, extra payoff potential, but extra risk. I think you've nailed it, mate. The other one I just had is the potential for regulation changes. There's been a yeah. bit of... A bit of noise about, oh, they shouldn't be allowed to happen. There should be a limit on them. or should be taxed differently or something else. So it, it, any, 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 early, um, any early technology, any early business idea, any early investment idea, you've got lots and lots of potential gain. You've also got much more risk because the playing field isn't, set, isn't laid out yet. And so just yep. kind of getting that bit right is, is important. My, 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 very quickly, my anecdotal... Um, experience with that is I, I think there's a lot of parallels with uber we've talked before yes, about in the early days of uber it was just such a magical experience yeah. you know it was a really it's a lot of you know the free mints and the water and the wonderful <laughs> chats and well, isn't this fantastic and and now they're just taxis right in the same sense that yeah. it's not that special an experience it's just a, a, a different uh, form of, of taxi same with airbnbs in the early days you know the hosts would meet you it'd be this while they're letting you into their home it was, it was real and now you hear plenty of horror stories too mm-hmm. with it just they just you, you've now got this much more fragmented decentralized industry where there's uh, there's a lot of bad players in that mm-hmm. space We'll try and whack you for, for fees that aren't reasonable. <laughs> you turn up and it's filthy or the stove doesn't work mm. and the rest of it. And it, 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 it's another classic example of an industry emerging and running so fast so soon that it outruns any regulation and any considerations around that. And it can just, it just I guess maybe you could probably just paint all of this as teething problems as the industry matures and, and the rest of it. But yeah, um, yeah it's it's... And on the other side too, right? So for, for the people who are doing really great jobs and providing really great experiences, they have the really bad um, tenants, isn't the right word, but, but customers as, as well. And mm. it just, uh, I, don't know what my, I don't know what my point is here, but I just, I think we too often look at all the upside potential and not realize just how difficult a, a trade it, it can be. Mm. Um, so just keep that in mind. I like it. Uh, second question is actually, he says, more equities uh, related, which is always a nice way to finish off. He says, what are your thoughts on the current drop in retail shares? Now, again, we'll t- date stamp time. This, this was recorded on the 16th of June. Adairs is trading at a PE of around five, while Dusk is less than four. If your answer includes the predicted decrease in consumer spending, how can we also see Temple and Webster trading at over 70 times? Yeah. Decreasing consumer spending shouldn't be a long-term risk. As it's more related to the macro, right? Mm. I this was a really good question, mate, for two reasons. And you can kind of uh, 
because it, it, but neither neither is an absolute both are relative right so is five cheap or is 70 expensive or maybe both and so stasi i think my, my first thought to you i think you're right by the way i think retail's cheap uh but i would say it's not don't assume it is as cheap because Templar Webster sells 70 times. You could say, gee, Templar Webster, we should short sell it because it's 70 times. It is it's five, and that's reasonable. Look how overvalued Templar Webster is. So you, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use one relative measure or one, frankly, guesstimate by by analysts and investors alike uh, of Templar Webster to say, therefore, Adairs is good or bad at a certain price. Now, I own Adairs. I don't own Dusk. Um, I just wanted to make that point, mate, that, you know, it's it, it, don't, don't look at... Plenty of people do. This is what happened, exactly what happened in the tech boom, in my opinion which was they said, hey, uh, we can, I think it's the other day, you know, uh, someone's actually a business of PE, uh, uh, price sales of 20 times, therefore 15 is cheap, 10 is cheap. Well, look, it's only half the price of the, of the, the business on a price sales of 20 times, which is all true, except that if the problem is with the uh, comparator being too expensive, rather than your stock being too cheap, you may find both are, are too expensive. Now, this is a very big difference. This is a PE of 5 and a PE of 70. So very, very different things, but a worthwhile question. Uh, my quick answer is I think retail is cheap. I think if these businesses don't go broke uh, during the downturn, and they might, so again, I'm not suggesting they won't, or not promising they won't. If they don't, uh, as you say, Stasi, I, I reckon JB Hi-Fi is an even easier choice, right? It's still, I think, single-digit PE. Go out to 2028, post whatever downturn, recession, slow down, whatever we have, and pass the recovery. And say, hang on, if I could buy it for eight times 2022 or 2023 earnings, uh, wouldn't that wouldn't that give me a pretty good return? I think the answer is probably yes. Uh, it's mm. a recommendation of ours, by the way, JB Hi-Fi, um, for, for for that for that reason. So I'm 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 very bullish the long term for a basket of retail stocks. There may well be some that don't make it. Uh, maybe they get taken out. Maybe they get bought out, and you got to go. Oh, I wanted all that return, and they disappeared. Uh, maybe some of them go broke. So be mindful of that. This is not a guarantee they won't go broke. But I think it's uh, I think it's a good time to to look very closely at some of those very beaten down retail stocks. Ram, yeah, I I, I made the comment the other day. The there will be abs there are absolutely some retailers out there that just deserve to come down, and there'll be mm. uh, well again if history is any guide, there'll be plenty that don't emerge the other <laughs> end. Or if they do, there'll be shareholders will be so heavily dis right. diluted that it, that it won't won't be great. Um, but I mean. Here's a, it is, um, Temple and Webster is a really interesting uh, case study, actually. So since it listed, shares, shares are now down 20% or so, close enough yeah, yeah. since they listed. I mean, gosh, what a disaster that's been. <laughs> actually, the company's come close enough to doubling its revenues and profit over that time. And so what's the disconnect there? Well, the disconnect is, is that there was this huge amount of expectation in the price. Mm. Now the expectation, while still perhaps elevated relative to recent <laughs> earnings, isn't mm. what it was. Mm. And it's just and, – and then now – Adairs has actually had a, a similarly good long-term sort of history. Yeah. Just delay for time here while I look it up. <laughs> but yeah, in, in 2016, okay, their dividends increased mm. 50% since then. Their sales on a per share basis have doubled since 2016. The, yeah, uh, up and to the left, right? Mm -hmm. um, they've, they've both done remarkably well. Up and to the right? Um, up and to the right, sorry. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, uh, so price, I don't, I mean, I, I, I generally don't like retail um, just because retail is detail. Retail is tough. It's a very, very tough business to do well. Yeah. And, awesome. and, and uh, just hyper cyclical. And so even the business that are really good are just going to go through very, very sort of tough times. Mm -hmm. But when, so when you're looking at a Temple and Webster and that's going to have all of those considerations and it's on a P of 38, 
Oh, yeah. actually, it's more than so. So, you got to look at depends if you're looking at forward yeah, yeah, or backwards yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, look, it's reasonably high double Expensive. digits. I think, <laughs> and you look at one yeah. on a P of five. Yep. I think what you can say, all else being equal, is that there is there is a much higher hill for the other one to climb because Adairs could. I mean. Adairs could go sideways mm. for five years, but still yes. remain profitable, continue to pay a dividend. And in, in more um, confident times, the market might deem it a PE of 10, which is still very low, right? But you've doubled your share price. Yes. And it, could be, it could be that Temple and Webster continue to double their earnings again, except the PE it, that in a future point in time is 20, which is again above the average. And it's sort of like that one wash, one's going to wash off the other. And, and so... I think what's interesting with some of these really high quality retailers is a couple of things can be true at once. They're probably going to be in for a tough time. It's probably going to suck over the next 12 months, maybe longer, maybe who knows, right? I, I don't know. But but if, and this is the biggest mm. if that you need to really be comfortable with, if they survive that without any you know highly dilutive raisings and as the cycle turns and we all start opening up our wallets and purses again and buying the pillowcases and the cover, you know, they will recover. They will go back to growth, and you will see earnings rise, and you'll see the market multiple increase. And so you've got a really nice sort of return, sort of potential in there. Uh, but don't kid yourself. You'll buy it, and it'll drop twenty percent the next day, and it'll yeah. stay there for two years. <laughs> yeah. Now you still might look back in, in the fullness of time and go, "What an incredible investment that was." Yeah, I could have, would have, should have waited. And you, you're always going to, pl- you will always do a, a post mortem analysis and realize that you could have done it better. But if you've still walked away from that and gotten a nice, attractive double-digit compound return on average mm. over a five-year period, that's that's an outstanding investment. Um, but just just know that it's not going to be. I mean, this is true of all stocks. I don't even need to, to quarantine this to it retailers. It's just it's going to be a rough ride. Correct. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of the advantage that I think we have. I often say this that the real edge you have as a private investor without the institutional imperative of having to outperform every quarter, half or, or years is, is patience. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could find a professional money manager in the country um, who, who really think that, I'll just use, keep using Adairs as the example, is really at an existential point in its existence. Um, and I think probably a, a few of them would actually say, yeah, look, if I look out 10 years, it's a bigger and better company than it is today. I'm just not going to buy it because I don't think anyone else will buy it. So they start playing these other yeah, games right. in, in right. the meantime, if you can go beyond that. And if you can be the kind of person who, who's happy to look like an idiot, because you will for a long period of time, <laughs> you, you, you can get great advantage in that because by the time the market is no longer worried about all of these things. It'll kind of be in the price. So you, you, you right. what does what does Buffett, Buffett Munger say? You pay a high price for a rosy consensus. Mm-hmm. If you want, this is the dilemma, right? We all want cheap bargain prices. We all want them. You only get them when there's scary things afoot. You, you, don't, you don't get a you don't get a bargain when everything looks wonderful. So it's so it's kind of like well. Careful what you wish for. You want a bargain? Great. You've got to have a company that's facing some, some significant headwinds or some r- huge amounts of uncertainty in the wider economy and the market. Then you'll get it. But that'll be exactly the point in time in which it'll be very hard to pull the trigger. But uh, yeah. but if you can and 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 your your fundamental reasoning is sound, I, I think it's it's probably makes sense. It's a lovely way to put it, mate. And certainly being uh, prepared for that volatility, as you say, that you know the that's market won't. And any stock, but particularly one that's out of favour. Expecting the market to turn around, to change its view just because you own the shares is an yeah. exercise in, in, in futility. So just keep that in mind as well. 
Mate, I reckon that'll do us for this particular episode. The last of our pre-records. If we have an episode next Friday, it means I've made it back. If there's no episode next Friday, well, then maybe there's a search party organised. Let's, let's find out, shall <laughs> It'll we? It'll be a one-hour monologue on Bitcoin from me. So that's, <laughs> oh, that's what it... <laughs> there, was a, there was a small but very dedicated group of people saying, gee, I hope Scott crashes somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Uh, the rest of them, I assume, at least want me back to to at least ask yeah. um, decent <laughs> questions. Go. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We won't, unless I am not back, have a Bitcoin episode next week. But we will have more from Andrew Page uh, and myself, Scott Phillips. Until then, have a great week and full on. Yeah, cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.